All right, if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Um, Actually, you might just want to look along in your bulletin because uh, a couple times during the sermon, I'm going to ask you to underline some things, and so it would probably be good not to do that in the Pew Bible, okay? Um, Unless you want to buy one, have your own Pew Bible. Some of you sit in the same place all the time, so you might (laughs) might as well write your name on it. All right. Today we're going to notice a change in Paul's letter. In the first four chapters, Paul was establishing our great need for the gospel. And in chapters 5 through 8 now, he unfolds what it looks like to live out the gospel. And so Paul pivots. It's as if he's anticipating what his readers will ask next. And, and he changes the, the tone from instead of you, 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 now it's we. There's some reality that, that um, all Christians share that Paul would like to get across. And, and the thoughts that are going through his readers' minds um, were something along these lines. What does justification by faith have to do with the daily ups and downs of life? How do I square the salvation that the gospel gives me with the suffering I experience? Today's sermon is titled, The Work of Grace, because God through Christ um, truly does uh, a work through us. And because of God's work of grace in our lives, we are to live as hope-filled rejoicers, even in the midst of our suffering. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, um, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower, the the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Um, Through your spirit, you have guided Paul to, to write a letter to this church in Rome, and we find life in it too. Uh, We pray that your spirit that dwells in us will richly enlighten us as to what you would speak to us. May we know um, the hope that we have in Christ and the certainty of it this morning. 
We pray. Amen. In 1945, David Hackworth lied and said he was old enough to join the army. He was 15 at the time. (laughs) He said he wanted to go to the Pacific and kill some Japs. Well, the war was ending and young Private Hackworth was sent to Italy, where he became a well-trained fighting machine. Within a few years, he was in an elite unit in Korea when the war broke out. Now, where on the street was, the war would be over in a few months. Seems like that's what they say at the beginning of all wars. But it dragged on and on and into the wintertime. Oh, and winters in Korea, they're brutal. Snow and ice, temperatures regularly going down to minus 20 degrees. And since, well, the war was going to end soon, the military machine did not provide any sort of proper clothing. No warm boots, no, no socks, no pants, no sweaters, no coats, no hats, no gloves, no sleeping bags. It was very difficult to survive those months. Many soldiers despaired so much from the suffering that they purposely shot themselves in the foot. Or they would hold their arms up out of the foxholes so that the enemy could shoot them so they would get their ticket home. Many soldiers lost feet and hands from frostbite. Now, you'd think that only the weak soldiers would do such things as shoot themselves in the foot or put themselves in harm's way so they could go home. Certainly not someone as committed as Hackworth. But night after night after night had taken his toll on him. And one night in despair, Hackworth made a plan. He sat on the lip of his foxhole and he had his one leg dangling into the foxhole and he held a a shivering cold fragmentation grenade. And he held it over over the foxhole and he reached for the pin and he began to pull it. But then he saw something. It was the sun rising on the horizon. And with that, he knew he would be warm, at least warm enough to live to fight another day. Seeing the glimmer of the sun's rays that bitter morning in 1951 gave Hackworth the hope he needed to soldier on. He learned that if he can make it through that most bitter cold night, he can make them through make it through them all. Private Hackworth went on uh, to two wars later, Vietnam War, to rise to the ranks of Colonel Hackworth. Uh, He was, uh, nickname was Hack. And at the time the Vietnam War was over, he was the most decorated soldier alive. He had received eight Purple Hearts, eight Bronze Stars with V for Valor, the Distinguished Flying Cross. I don't know how he got that. He's in the Army, after all. Uh, Four Legion of Merit Commendations, ten Silver Stars, and two Distinguished Service Crosses, the second highest honor one could be bestowed. Hope can work wonders into the human psyche. Today we will look at the hope that God gives all of his children, 
like the warm sun rising on a frigid battlefield, the gospel, as it rises into our lives, gives us hope, hope that we can rejoice in. Now, the word hope in the Bible uh, is uh, a no small potatoes hope. I know the word, um, you know, hope in our culture is, you know, it's kind of like, Well, you know, I hope so. You know, there's no certainty behind it. You know, I I hope to win the lottery. You know, I hope to be a movie star someday. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it is a certain hope. Why is this? Well, because the hope that God gives us in the gospel is, is his hope. God is the one who stands behind it. It will certainly come to pass. And we need this kind of hope to make us rejoicers. Why? Because this side of heaven, life often feels like a battle. Often Christians find themselves in circumstances where they're tempted to think they have no hope. Instead of finding hope in the gospel, they look for some way out, even if it means losing a leg. Or we live cowering lives as if God has abandoned us. Or we push God aside and we say, it looks like I'm on my own, guess I'll have to take charge from here. You see, in the terrifying battles of life, and even in the humdrum daily ups and downs of life, we can, we can doubt God's loving involvement in our lives. You know, in a battle, they would, uh, from the battlefield, the soldiers would communicate to the higher-ups, and, and they would issue what's called a situation report or a sit-rep. It would go something like this, you know, two KIA, eight WIA, We're low on ammo and water, but we hold the high ground. In our passage, Paul gives us a situation report for all Christians. He says, I know things look bleak. I know uh, it might look like um, you face insurmountable odds. But let me show you that your situation is actually quite bright. Look to the horizon. See God's steadfast love and never-ending love. It's come upon you. Our sermon is titled The The Work of Grace because our passage shows us how the gospel works in us to make us hope-filled rejoicers. Regarding this work of grace, we're going to divide our time into two areas. First, we're going to look at the activity of love and then the assurance of love. First, the activity of love. The big idea here is this. God's love has an effect. God, through Jesus Christ, actively brings peace, grace, and glory into our lives. This fills us with hope and causes us to be rejoicers. God's past action of sending his son to die for us brings an ongoing reality into the Christian's life. The ongoing reality is what? We have peace with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore... Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember the word justification. It's courtroom language. It means uh, you've been declared not guilty. And remember what we've learned from these past weeks is that God declares us not guilty, not by our own good works, but he declares us not guilty through Christ. And we receive this justification by faith. Paul wants us to see that God's loving action in the past has an ongoing reality for his children. Therefore, says Paul, therefore, we have peace with God. If you're in Christ, you have peace with God. 
God is no longer your adversary. He is no longer an angry judge with every right to punish you. Christ has satisfied on your behalf God's anger and his wrath. You now have peace with God. While once you were God's enemy, Christ has brought you into God's family. Now, peace is a relational word. Christ brings us into a thriving relationship with the creator of the universe. God is now your father, and as such, he truly has your best interests at heart. Do you believe that? Paul builds upon this in verse 2. Paul says that with this peace, you also have access. Now, what is it that we have access to? Yes, we have access to God, but Paul is more particular in his wording. Look at verse 2. Through him, that's through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is one of the greatest truths you can press into your being. (laughs) Why? Well, Christian, have you ever blown it so bad that you cannot help but think that it's going to take a long time before you get back into God's favor? (laughs) That because of some ongoing sin or something big you just recently did, that God somehow has you in his doghouse. And therefore, you, you try to picture yourself coming into his presence, and you can't help but squirm, right? Or isn't it true there's times when, when you can't really think of anything bad you've done, but the thought of drawing near to God makes you uneasy? Like those times you do a, a double take in the rearview mirror when you, when you see the cop car behind you. <laughs> Like, you're pretty confident you didn't do anything wrong, and yet still, for some reason, you're uneasy. The only one not laughing is our police officer here in the room. All right. right. So, too, we can become uneasy and squirm around in our relationship with God. We can live as if we're always under God's skeptical scrutiny. But Paul says it's time for a paradigm shift in how you view your relationship with God. Because of God's loving activity, his ongoing activity towards you, we do not need to squirm, but rather stand. We stand in grace. Through Christ, we have received access. We've been brought into a a whole new realm or sphere or way of living. Everywhere you go, Christian, uh, you are covered with God's grace. There's now nowhere you can go or nothing you can do to change the fact that you now stand in God's grace. God isn't up in heaven scrutinizing your every move looking for you to fail. God has pledged upon the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to forever lavish his grace upon you. It cannot be undone. Therefore, in Christ, we stand in grace. Do you see how this is grace for daily living? Grace to fail? Grace to succeed? Paul says that this has a profound effect upon how we see things. We're to become rejoicers. In the the last part of verse 2, underline the words, we rejoice. That's the application. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
To rejoice means to delight and to take pleasure in something. Biblical hope, as we've stated, is a certain hope. Now, what is it specifically that we're to rejoice in? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does this mean? Well, Paul has already used the word glory a few times in this letter. Glory means God-likeness. Understand this. The God of glory made you for glory. We're hardwired for glory. Problem is, until God gives you a new life in Christ, we seek for glory in all sorts of false and unsatisfying places. But God has promised today when the godlike glory that we have lost will be perfectly and fully restored to God's people. Therefore, we're to rejoice. We're to rejoice in this hope. We're to, we're to delight in the peace that God has given us. We're to be amazed at the fact that we stand in God's grace and to marvel that God is one day going to make us participants of his glory. Because of this, we're to be hope filled rejoicers. Now, isn't it easy to rejoice when things are going well for us? It is, isn't it? Well, in the beginning of verse 3, Paul shows us that God's loving activity towards us makes us hope-filled rejoicers even in our suffering. Now, most people, when they find themselves in trials or in the midst of suffering, Um, What do they do? They seek immediate extrication. Get me out of here. Now, we can understand why secular people might live this way. If you buy in the false narrative that the goal of humanity is to find just a, a, a happy life for yourself, then anything that threatens that happy life, of course, would be a a threat to be avoided. But it's also true that even Christians can live this way. We find ourselves knee-deep in the doo-doo of life, and we think, God would never want me to struggle financially. God would never want me to go without companionship. God would never want me to suffer from chronic pain. Therefore, God, get me out of these suffering circumstances. And after a period of time, if you're still in these circumstances, then what? The common response is to question God's goodness. God, I've done what all good Christians are supposed to do. I've even sacrificed my time with my family to lead that missions trip. So why am I going through all this? It's true, isn't it? If we aren't careful, we can use our supposed faithfulness as bargaining chips with God. But God does not owe us a happy life on our terms. Paul tells us something counterintuitive. He says we're to rejoice in our sufferings. In verse 3, underline the words, we rejoice. Once again, that's the application. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why are we to rejoice in our sufferings? Paul says, because your sufferings, if you process them correctly, will actually increase your hope. It's counterintuitive. The common belief is that suffering drains whatever hope you have right out of you. How is it that suffering increases hope? Paul says there's something we must 
No. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing. Knowing what? Paul presents us with a three-part chain. Chain reactions takes place. Three times Paul says something produces something. All right? The first one, I want you to underline. Underline the first chain. Suffering produces endurance. The Greek word translated endurance can also be translated uh, perseverance. And I think all of us kind of get this, right? All of us has gone, have gone through a time maybe in math class uh, or maybe in some sort of athletics or sports where after a time you didn't give up and you endured, you, you persevered. It's good to learn endurance at a young age, isn't it? See, the more we suffer and stick it out, the more we learn endurance. It's as if you come to realize, I've, I've endured this before, I can endure it again. Now underline, endurance produces character. <clears throat> Paul shows us that the more you find yourself enduring suffering, the more character is worked into you. Now, now the word character comes from a Greek word that really means battle-tested, reliable, trustworthy. In his memoir, Colonel Hackworth um, said the most important trait of a soldier was trustworthiness. When his unit suffered casualties, they would be replaced with these fresh recruits that had never been battle-tested. Would they hold up? Can they be trusted when I cry out, cover me? Only after suffering alongside someone in battle can you determine if the soldier in the foxhole next to you has the character to stick it out. But on a positive side, if all the men in your platoon prove themselves trustworthy, then a door opens up, a door to hope. Underlying character produces hope. This is the Christian saying, God, you have taken me down this road before. I've seen you time and time again deliver me in the midst of these sufferings. I've seen how you've built me up and strengthened me over and over. It wasn't pleasant, no, but it was good. Therefore, I know you will walk with me again. I do not know where you're leading me, but I do know I stand in your grace. And because of that, I'm able to rejoice in this suffering. Paul speaks to us what should now be obvious to us. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul says we must know this. (laughs) Because when we know that God cares more about our character than our comfort, we will be people who genuinely rejoice in our sufferings. Paul ends this point by saying that this work of hope that God develops in us is actually a shame avoidance device. How so? Well, Paul concludes his point with an interesting phrase that begins verse 5. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. Do you remember how last week we saw that Abraham did what? He hoped against hope. Abraham had no 
earthly certainty or hope that God was going to create life where there was death and power where there is weakness. But Abraham hoped against hope. Abraham and all of us who live by faith, we look foolish to the watching world. We are believing in and we are waiting for things that the world cannot see or believe in. We have priorities that are upside down to the priorities of this world. This world cannot process the successful business owner leaving it all to go start an orphanage. Oh, they might say, you know, nod their head and sell say, well, you know, that's nice. But in their heart of hearts, it makes no sense to them. It looks like utter foolishness. They think it's going to bring upon you shame. But when God works his activity of love in us, we know this hope will not put us to shame. Douglas Moo, yes, that's his name, writes, he's a brilliant man, (laughs) writes, but we don't appear foolish to ourselves because we are sustained by something far deeper, something which grows directly out of the gift of peace with God. Christian, do you feel as if God is obligated to extricate you from the trials of life? Or have you come to believe that God works character through our suffering and produces within us hope? Paul moves us to part two of our sermon from the loving activity of God, which makes us hopeful rejoicers, to the assurance of God's love, which does the same, makes us hopeful rejoicers. We see this in verse five, that second half of it, all the way through verse 11. Now, The idea running through the mind of Paul's readers was something that comes to our mind as well. You know, how can we know this hope is for real? How can we know that not only has God saved us, but that he will, in fact, deliver us into this future glory that Paul is talking about? How are we to be assured of our salvation, past, present, and future? Paul shows us two reasons. First, he points us to the subjective assurance of God's love, and then the objective assurance of God's love. First, our subjective assurance. Look at the second half of verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian. Every Christian shares this subjective experience of God's love that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Remember the book of Romans is about the new life that God gives us in Christ. With Christ, the promise of the Old Testament that God would take out that cold, stony heart and put in a heart of flesh that beats for God. In the Old Testament promise that that God would once and for all place his own very spirit in his people, 
In Christ, that reality has come true. The Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Later in in chapter 8, Paul writes, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in your head, audibly telling you, see, you're a child of God. No, the Holy Spirit resides in your heart. Without words, he impresses upon you and me realities that words cannot express. Christian, you've experienced this, haven't you? And you do regularly. Perhaps when you're meditating on scripture. Perhaps when you're lifting your heart in in praise during uh, music, during worship. Perhaps when you're bowing your heart in prayer. The Spirit of God gives you a wordless awareness of God's love in your life. You cannot put a finger on it, but it is there, right? You've experienced this, right? Why do we experience this assurance? Well, Paul says, because God, you see that, pours his love. I mean, just imagine like a, you know, giant, like, drum of water just being dropped upon you. God pours his love into the hearts of his children. Did you notice this isn't so much you and me like tapping into God like a spigot on a maple tree, right? This is God's work. This is God pouring into you. God is pouring his love into the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit. Why does God do this? Because God wants you to know exactly how much God loves you. God loves you so much, he wants you to experience it. Not just in an intellectual way, but in a way in which you can't put your finger upon it. The response for us? Oh, that we just open wide our hearts and let, us, let him fill us to the brim, right? That's the subjective assurance. The remaining verses, we see the objective assurance of God's love. First, Paul reminds us of just who we were before God's love was lavished upon us. I recently, this week, had a a new friend place his faith in Christ, and he is alive in Christ. And one of our elders, uh, you know, got me thinking last night when we were talking about it, and it's like, I had to remember back, it's been 20 years since that happened to me, I had to remind myself the joy of knowing um, what God has done for me. We get to thinking that we're pretty good people after a while of walking with Christ, right? No, what Paul, Paul shows us here is just the depths to which we were broken before Christ came. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember last week, we saw that only God can give life where there's death, power where there is weakness. And every human being is utterly weak and unable to bring ourselves into God's presence. But, but God gives us his grace. While we're still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is perfect in his timing. At the absolute right time, he sent his son into the world. 
And at the absolute right time, you came to believe in him. <clears throat> Second, Paul reminds us of the riches, richness of God's love. We see this in verses 7 and 8. These verses can be a bit confusing. Uh, let me read them first, and then we'll make sense of them, all right? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps you know, for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you ever sacrifice your life for another? Well, let's see. Uh, I've got some non-negotiables. Is, uh, is the person nice? I mean, I'm not going to die for some worthless loser, some dope-smoking, selfish prig, right? So I don't know the guy. What's he like? That's what Paul says, uh, what we know in our hearts to be true, that scarcely or rarely would anyone die for some stranger, even if they happen to be a decent person. We would be more likely to die for a good friend we admire. That's what he's getting at in the second point. You might die for someone good. How do we know someone's good? Because we know them. We hang out with them. We like them. They're our buddy. Paul says we would scarcely die for a decent stranger, and we would maybe consider dying for someone close to us. But even then, the odds are slim. See, we humans calculate worthiness before we give ourselves to another. It's true, right? The more worthy, the more likely we would die to save someone. But even then, probably not. Paul says that God does the opposite. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please understand what Paul is saying here. Before God came and and brought us into his family, there, there, was, there was nothing worthy in us. There was nothing in us that screams up to heaven, hold on, we found something redeeming here. There was nothing redeeming in any of us. When given the chance to die for selfish, ungodly sinners, all of humanity cries out in unison, hell no, we won't go. But Jesus said to his father, yes, yes, let me go. Paul is trying to impress upon us the magnitude of God's love that we need to get driven into our thick, dull skull. You were nothing special, Paul's writing to these Romans. You were entirely saved by grace. You were an enemy. You were so full of godlessness that no one in their right mind would ever die for you. And yet look at the love of God for you, that he did this for you. The point being, We are to have such assurance of God's love when we look at the cross and see the magnitude of his love for us. Yes, God saved me in the past. I trust that. And I know he's saving me now. And I can trust that he will save me in the future. 
In the last three verses, Paul gives us a rational argument that is meant to stretch and strengthen our hope to the point where we rejoice in God. A little confusing as well, but let's read it. Verse 9 and 10. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Let me give you an illustration that'll help make sense of this. Say you were a high jumper on the school track team, and you've been working hard and persevering, your muscles are getting stronger, your timing is getting really good. You used to be able to only clear five foot two inches, right? But now you clear six feet, you know, maybe on a bad day, five ten, but you're, you're solid, right? Imagine your coach tells you we've got tryouts for, for state finals are coming up and uh, it's this Friday and you got to be able to clear five foot two inches. You would say, coach, watch. And you take off and you jump and you clear six feet and with great confidence you, you would say, I think I can handle five two. That's what Paul is doing here. Jesus has cleared six foot. He's cleared far higher. We can trust him with the five two. Jesus has already done the difficult work of dying for the ungodly. How much more can we trust him with the easy thing? Or at least least easier for him. If Christ has already poured out his blood so that we can be reconciled to God, how much more can we trust him now that we are reconciled to God to bring us where he says he's going to take us? If Christ has already taken upon himself on the cross all the wrath for all of our sin, he's already done that? How can we not now expect him to continue on and fulfill the remainder of his promise of salvation for us? Do you see that? Does that make sense? Paul said, you Christians, you should have great assurance of the hope that is to come. Because Christ has already done the hard work and brought you into God's family. And you're in God's family, so surely he's going to bring you where he's going to take God's family. Now, does this assurance rest in your hearts? Is it penetrating? Do you see how knowing such marvelous truth and embracing them in our heart allows us to endure the trials and the sufferings of life? Things get difficult. We know we, we know that God hasn't abandoned us. We know instead that he's working in the midst of these trials. Don't run away from them. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm not saying don't pray that God would help you find a mate or help you with your difficult financial situation. But don't be in such a hurry to get out of it that you miss Christ in the midst of it, right? In the character development he has in mind for you. And, and, and we can know that this is going to happen. Why? Because Christ has died and already brought us into his family. He's already done the much more. How can we not trust him with the even much more? I mean, that's Paul's point. Now, how are we to respond? We're going to wrap up with this. We are to rejoice in God. Verse 11, underline, we also rejoice. Paul writes, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great the love you've lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. 
We thank you, Father, um, that you allow us to see the world differently. Um, You create in us uh, an awareness that because of the work of your Son, we we are now at peace with you. We now, therefore, stand in grace. We now, therefore, know that this hope of glory is coming our way. We even know that in suffering, you work in your people to shape us and mold us to be more like Christ. We praise you that you give us assurance of your love through the Holy Spirit poured out into the hearts of your people. And we thank you that you give us assurance through the cross wherein we see the lavish love that you have given to us. May we be people of great hope and may we be rejoicers. We pray. Amen.